Good morning. It's great to see you here today. I uh, want to begin with a, a short story. Listen to this story. Dr. Viktor Frankl, author of the book Man's Search for Meaning, was uh, imprisoned by the Nazis in World War II because he was a Jew. His wife, his children, his parents were all killed in the Holocaust. The Gestapo made him strip. He stood there totally naked as they cut away his wedding ring. Victor said to himself, you can take my wife, you can take my children, you can strip me of my clothes and my freedom, but there's one thing no person can ever take away from me, and that is my freedom to choose how I will react to what happens to me. And that's quite a, quite a testimony and quite a powerful statement made in light of the Holocaust and that backdrop. And I read a story like that and I know how you feel. I know how I feel. I go, wow, I don't know if I had the courage or the will uh, to make a statement or to take a stand like that in that situation. But I submit to you something this morning. Um, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can experience reality equal to this or maybe even greater than what Victor experienced. As we've gotten into this series called The Battle Within for the last several weeks, looking at the topic of sanctification from Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Uh, Paul brings us now in chapter 7, which is what we're getting to this morning, to a completion of some thoughts that he began really in Romans chapter 6 uh, on this idea that we can really live a genuinely changed, sanctified life to the glory of Jesus Christ. We can really become the person that God intends for us uh, to become in the most difficult of circumstances, if that be the case. I want to begin by going through a short review because it sets up the message today really well for us. So since I've used that word sanctification already this morning, let me give you once again a definition of sanctification. It means to make holy, set apart from common usage. It implies both a change of status. You're made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus. So when you're born again and ask Jesus into your heart, God looks at you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as a born-again child, holy, separated unto him. It also involves a change of state, becoming holy, God's person in all areas of your life. And that's really the topic that Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 deal with uh, explicitly, what it means to become holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, God's man and woman and everything that I do. It's not only God's desire to save our souls from eternity in hell. It's his desire that you and I experience genuine life change now. And we've learned over the last three weeks in Romans some important truths to making this thing more than wishful thinking, but a reality that we experience. Let me do this review with you. First of all, you have to know who you are in Christ. You just have to know who you are in Christ. Your old nature has been put to death and you have been made new in Jesus Christ. This becoming a new person in Jesus Christ is not a little tweaking. It's not a little Jesus add-on to my life to make my life a little bit better. It's a radical reorientation of everything that I do in my life for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's about my old nature, my sinful nature being put to death, and Christ being resurrected in me, and I live for him now as my Lord as well as my Savior. Secondly, you have to count yourself dead to sin, but alive to Christ Alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, you have a new person. You are a new person. You are a new creation. You are to have a new perspective. You don't see things from a worldly viewpoint anymore. And you have a new purpose. You live now for the purpose of expanding the kingdom of the Jesus Christ. And this is what Pastor Aaron looked at last week with you. You are to abide in Jesus with a slave viewpoint. With a slave viewpoint. 
you will be a slave to something. We don't like to hear that in this country because we think we're free. But we're not free. We serve either sin or we serve Jesus Christ. There is no neutrality. There is no middle ground here. You're either a slave to your sin nature and its desires and death, or you're a slave to Jesus Christ, to his righteousness, and to life evermore in him. Does that not simplify life for us? Knowing we only have two choices, I'm a slave either to sin or I'm a slave to Christ. But those are really the only two options we have. You need to see life as a slave would see it. That means you make it your purpose to know your master and to know his wishes and to know his desires. You make it your purpose to serve your master, Jesus, because a slave would serve their master, Jesus. But know this. Realize there's great benefits in being a slave to Jesus, that it's a delightful, wonderful life that he has in store for those who give their life to him. In Romans chapter 6, we learn this real pivotal principle. I'm still on review with you this morning. And it's this. For sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law, but we're under grace. So you're under grace, if you're a follower of Jesus, that enables the new life in Jesus Christ. Now this is what we're going to look at explicitly this morning. What it means to be under grace which enables the new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where Paul takes us now in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Now, to be under means uh, to have uh, a commanding force over you, uh, being under the power of something. And so what, what's, what Paul's saying here is that as a follower of Jesus Christ, when you receive Christ and the Holy Spirit enters into you, you're under the commanding force of Jesus Christ, through the person of the Holy Spirit living in you. And he enables you to do things that you cannot and and will not do on your own. You can never succumb to this thinking. I'll never be able to defeat this sin in my life. Or that person who says they're a Christian, they're always going to be that ordinary person because that's just who they are. That, my friend, is wrong thinking as a Christ follower. We are not who we are. We are who we're supposed to become in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I hear this excuse given, well, that person's always just been like that, and they say they're a Christ follower, I'm going, that's not how this is supposed to work, amen? Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And if I'm filled with the person of the Holy Spirit, I am becoming something I am formerly not. And God is doing in me things I cannot do in myself. But I can never make a truce with my sinful nature and say, well, that's just the way I am, and that's just the way I'm always going to be. That is thinking wrongly as a Christ follower. Real life change in Jesus is possible. Do you believe that? Same reaction I got first hour. Kind of some head nogging. Yeah, I know we're a quiet group here. But real life change is possible. Amen? Say that out. Well, you can clap. Thanks, Kelsey. I'll give you a donut after church. (laughs) All right, say it out loud with me. Real life change is possible. Here we go. Real life change is possible. Now say it like you're living down south and you're outgoing people. Ready? Here we go. Real life change is possible. We're going to experience that with 14 people at the end of service who are saying before us, real life change is possible. I've given my life to the Lord Jesus Christ and I no longer live and he lives in me. Amen? Because that's the basic message of Jesus. Real life change is possible. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 7 here in just a moment. But I think we need to ponder this understanding that real life change is possible. It can be difficult. It can be really difficult. 
One of my favorite scenes from a movie is Bruce the Shark and Nemo, where they're having their little uh, get-together about fish or friends. I thought you might enjoy that for a moment. We're going to watch that here right now. Right then. The meeting has officially come to order. Let us all say the pledge. I now am my shark, not a mindless eating machine. If I am to change this image, I must first change myself. Fish are friends, not food. <laughs> I love Marlin's. He's kind of got this grimace going. What Bruce the shark is saying is that they could change as sharks. Now get this. As funny as it seems. We can change like that in Christ. We are not destined to be mastered by sin. We're destined to be mastered by Lord Jesus Christ if we're a follower of Jesus Christ. And like Bruce the shark could say, fish are friends, we too can begin to have a different, entirely different outlook and attitude on our lives. Do something for me right now because I want to keep illustrating to you that change is difficult and can feel awkward at, at the same time. If you're right hand, grab your pen in your left hand. If you're left-handed, grab your pen on your right hand. Write your name on your note guide real quick with your off hand, your non-dominant hand. Now, some of you are ambidextrous. I'm pretty ambidextrous, so it doesn't. So for you, forget this illustration. It won't work that well. But for most of us, writing with our left hand would be really, really awkward. And uh, what I'm trying to help you to kind of come to grips with this morning is sometimes following God and trusting God and doing what God wants us to do and becoming whom God wants us to become can feel like I'm writing with my wrong hand. It can be like, I, I feel super awkward here. But if we do it enough and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us enough, guess what? It rewires us. It reorients us. And we become this new creation, living a sanctified life for the glory uh, uh, of God. Um, so here we are. We're ready now to read what I call the capstone to Paul's thinking on genuine life change in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Listen to this. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him, who raised from the dead, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Here's how I would sum up the verses I just read to you. I would, first of all, entitle them, We've Been Released. We've been released from an old way, uh, a way that really never really was meant to be the way, but oftentimes was saw saw us away. But but just let me give you the point. Just like a married woman is released from her marriage by the death of her husband, by Christ's death, you were released from the law. Now, I'm going to explain what that means because I think people really misinterpret this scripture a lot and say, oh, we just throw out the law of God altogether and I'm free in the spirit to do whatever I want. That's not at all what this scripture is saying, and you'll see that as I continue on this morning. Um, But in Romans chapter 6, it's been established over and over again that we have died with Christ, 
And we are entering into a new way of relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in biblical times, if you paid close attention to your Bible, you would notice something. A woman could not leave her husband unless he died. This wasn't real equal because he could write her a certificate of divorce and divorce her, but she couldn't really do that in his case. She could only be released from the marriage if he died. And that's why I think Paul used this specific, specific example of a woman here, because they'd go, oh, okay, I understand what you're saying here. And, and what Paul's saying by this, and the picture he's trying to paint for you and I is this, since we have died with Christ, some fundamental relational things with God have changed, and we have a new marriage now with God in a new way uh, through the Holy Spirit, and it, it's not through the law. And the law never was intended to do that anyway. But, but, but what Paul's saying here is, like, like when a woman's husband dies, she's free to remarry, no big deal. Since Christ has died and paid the price for our sins, and we have died with him, we're free now to remarry God in this new way uh, uh, through, the, through the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's what he's saying here. Uh, but when I, when I share this with you, I think a lot of the confusion that happens with Romans chapter 7, for instance, this part, people go, well, what, what law has, doesn't apply? What does that mean, the law of God doesn't apply anymore? So I want to talk about properly applying the law of God and understanding the law of God with you for a few moments so you know what exactly has no relevance to you and I as a follower of Jesus Christ anymore since that part of the law no longer applies to us, all right? So I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 10 and read to you some scripture there. In fact, 18 verses is rather long, but it talks about some of the purposes of the law and is a very clarifying scripture for us because it clarifies for you and I what Paul is saying here no longer applies to us when it comes to the law. So let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Listen to this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshiper would have been cleansed once for all, it would no longer felt guilty for their sins. I want to take a break with you for a moment here. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have received him by faith into your heart, you are guilt-free. I see a lot of Christians who are guilty about their past and still beat themselves up about sins committed before they were a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, God has forgiven your sins and forgiven gotten them, why are you remembering them? Amen? They're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't do that. God doesn't do that. You don't need to do that. Let's go on to verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible, hear this now, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know why? Because they just foreshadowed what would happen in Jesus Christ. The only reason these annual sacrifices had any meaning at all is that they were foreshadowing what God would ultimately do in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what they were supposed to do is help the ones of that time put their faith forward into what God would do for them, but not in that process itself because the blood of goats and, and bulls cannot take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with 
burnt offerings and sin offerings, you are not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, established the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifices of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He reminds me of mowing my yard. You just got to do it every week. Sorry. But when this priest had offered for one time, uh, for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them at that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now get this. This is the part of the law that Paul is talking about in Romans 7 that no longer applies to us. We should not be married to it. It has no more uh, application. And this is point one. You were released from the law that was a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ. You've been released from that. So what Paul is referring to here is the laws dealing with sacrifice and ritual and priestly, you know, kind of uh, duties and how to carry them out, that's all been completed in Jesus Christ. Amen? We no longer have to worry about that because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sins. These laws were a foreshadowing of what was to be the reality in Jesus Christ. A shadow is two-dimensional, right? You look at a shadow and you can kind of make out what it represents. It's one color, gray, dark, black, whatever color, depending on how good the light is, right? But you, that shadow is not the reality itself. And that's what Paul's saying here, and that's what the Hebrew writer is saying here, is, is that that shadow was connected to what? The reality of Jesus. And so when we see Jesus, we get the full 3D picture. We get color, man. We don't have to look at the shadow anymore. The, those things are gone. They're done with. They're completed. They've fulfilled their purpose. They're no longer applicable. Now, does that mean we don't study things like the tabernacle or, you know, some of the priestly laws? No, they're, they're still profitable to study because they teach us about Jesus and his ministry. But they don't apply anymore because the reality has come. Jesus has come. So let me give you this in a point. The sacrificial system has become obsolete. You don't have to offer bulls and goats anymore. The tabernacle and the priestly duties of the tabernacle were a shadow of Jesus and are no longer needed now that Jesus has come. Jesus is the high priest and no further sacrifice is needed. This is the part of the law that Romans 7 is talking about that has what? Passed away, been put to death. It's no longer applicable. We've died to it. We don't need it anymore. Does that help clarify what Paul's talking about a little bit here in Romans 7? Because people read that oftentimes and I hear them say, I'm free! I don't have to do any laws. I can do any questionable thing I want because I'm not under law. I'm under, you know, this new thing and the, the spirit and grace. And I'm going, oh man, a lot. That's not all what that's saying. It's not all what it's implying. But the law still has 
some really good purposes, and I want to cover those with you this morning real quickly. The law reveals your status as a sinner and your need of a Savior. It's always had that purpose. It will continue to always have that purpose. Romans 3.20 says, we don't become righteous in the sight by observing the law. Rather, we become conscious of sin. The law shows you and I, woo, we're messing up here. We need some help. Galatians 3.24 tells us that uh, one of the purposes of the law is, is the schoolmaster. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago. And the schoolmaster's job back in the days of Jesus was to take the hand of the student and escort them to synagogue. It wasn't the end. It was a means to get you to an end. And so the law escorts you to see your need of the Savior, of Jesus. That's one of the purposes of the law that still applies. The law is a protective boundary. It's a good thing. I was just visiting my grand uh, boys at Abby's boys are three and two. There's something else. Whew. A lot of energy, right? And I found myself spending a lot of time protecting them from themselves. Right? Amen? They're outside, and there's a big dog pile. Don't touch that! So Rowan puts a rock on it. I go, oh, I don't know if you should have done that because your brother's going to pick that rock right up, you know? And so you spend a lot of time just protecting them from themselves. You've got to understand that God's laws, like the Ten Commandments, they're this protective boundary for us. They're good. And they say, play in this place, and that's okay. Play outside of this place. It's not okay. See, I liken the law to a fence around the yard. And say you live in this grand house, and you've got this nice fence around it. On one side, you have 94, Highway 94. If you're from the Twin Cities, everything that's bad has got 94 on it. Amen? 694, 494, 394, 94, just plain old 94, right? They're all bad. They're busy streets. You don't want to wander out in those streets. Imagine on the other side, of, well, the fence, you have a lion mine. Probably don't want to go there. On the other side of the fence, you've got a raging river. Some of you might think that's good, but it's not raging river that you ride a tube down. It's a real raging river. And the other side is sheer cliff. If you're sending your kids outside to play, you say, play inside the fence. Why? Because you don't want to have fun. You don't want to, you want to wreck their fun. You don't want them to fall off the cliff, right? You don't want them to have a limb blown off in the minefield. You don't want to hit them, get hit by a car or, 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 or you know, have them um, drowned or something, right? You, you do it because you love them. God has provided his law for us because he loves us. And he's saying inside this law of mine is the safe place for you to operate. Now we get to the point of today is point number four, and where Paul took us in Romans chapter 7. Through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, the law, and Hebrews 10 told us this also. For example, the Ten Commandments. So when I say the law, Ten Commandments is a good example. is written on your heart as your code of behavior. So as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, filled with the person of the Holy Spirit, Part of what it means to be a sanctified follower, one who is becoming holy God's person, W-H-O-L-L-Y, in all areas of your life, is that you begin to allow the Holy Spirit to put God's laws and ways into your inner person, and you begin to love those and follow those, not out of duty, but out of devotion and out of adoration for God. Amen? That's one of the purposes of the law also. And the Holy Spirit will empower you to know these laws, to love them, and to embrace them. 
So we're ready to head back now to our capstone thought for the message this morning. And whenever I use a word like capstone, I think, oh, I'll give you a little picture. This will kind of show you what capstone means. Some of you are going to go, oh, I know all this already. That's great. Good for you guys. That's good. But a capstone is that center stone on an arch. And the whole arch leans into it. If you pull out the capstone in that, in that structure there, guess what happens? It all falls down. It doesn't stand on its own, right? So in architecture, when they talk about a capstone or whatever, it's that main stone that everything leans in on and the whole structure relies upon. So I want to give you the capstone thought when it comes to genuine life change today to living the sanctified life. Paul has brought us through Romans chapter 6 to this first kind of uh, thought process in chapter 7 about uh, this capstone idea, what it means to live a genuinely changed, sanctified life. And it's this. You have been released from the law to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Now, that, that, that phrase, new way, is cool in the New Testament. It means in a freshness and superiority way. So basically, you have been released from the law to serve in the freshness and the superiority of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying here. And that's our capstone thought for this message uh, this morning. Paul's saying, listen, Romans chapter 6, you're dead to sin. Dead men don't sin, right? Remember we talked about that? You're dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. You have a new resurrected life in Christ. You're going to be a slave to something, either a slave to your sinful nature or a slave to Jesus Christ. He's given us these wonderfully deep thoughts. Then he brings us to Romans chapter 7. He says, now listen, all this is possible because the person of the Holy Spirit will live in you and enable you to do it. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot do it by trying harder. And there is one of the mistakes that so many people make. They feel bad about how their life's going, so they think, I need to try harder. No, you need to pray more for the filling of the person of the Holy Spirit. Are you hearing what I just said there? It's an opposite way that many people pray. They pray, God, you know, strengthen me to do better, blah, 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 blah. Pray that God would fill you with the person of the Holy Spirit so that you're not relying on your strength, but you're relying upon the work of the Spirit in you to do that in you, which you cannot do yourself. In fact, frequently what you need to do is just come to God and say, I can't do this. And he'll go, I know. Good for you. You finally figured it out. And then pray, God, fill me with the person of the Holy Spirit so that I can experience the life you intend for me to experience and live the way you want me to live. So here's our conclusion this morning. Ask for the Holy Spirit to empower you. And I'm going to give you one of my favorite verses that support this thought process. It's from Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. I remember reading this as a young man in my early teenage years, and it drastically changed how I approached God. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a scorpion instead, or a snake instead, excuse me? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who what? Ask him. Ask him. And so if we really want to have genuine life change, truly want to live a sanctified life that God desires for you and I to live, we need to be asked to to be filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. See, I think there's a couple ways we can do our Christianity in my recent... um, Vacation kind of brought this delight to me. Sometimes I think all I talk about is my vacations. I'm really not on vacation that much. But at any rate, so we went, we went out to the, the, the Tetons and to Yellowstone. And it's a wonderful place to go. 
and, and, and visit and spend a few days out there. And I notice there's two ways you can kind of do that kind of vacation or that kind of national park experience. I saw a lot of people on the road, big long lenses on their cameras. I mean, I didn't know they existed. Some of these cameras are foot and a half lenses and they're taking pictures and everything and people would stop, pull over, take pictures. Nothing wrong with doing that, by the way, other than you get irritated by them stopping in front of you all the time, amen? But nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, it's beautiful pictures, beautiful park. I think, though, that's a little bit remote, a little bit disconnected from my good, from my, my tastes. And I think a lot of us do our Christianity a little bit that way, if we're honest. We're kind of sitting back, and we take pictures, and we're kind of off, but we're not really jumping into the experience of it. We're not really getting into the nitty-gritty of it. And it's beautiful to look at, and it's beautiful to behold, and God still does beautiful things in our life. But then, you know, Vicki and I love to hike. And one day we did like 17 miles. It's the most beautiful thing ever. And you're just in the middle of it. And this beauty's all around you, and you're immersed in it, and you're exhausted, right? And tired, but you're thinking, man, look at this, look at that, look at this. And so one, one day on the road, we saw a bear. Vicky's always wanted to see a bear. I don't really want to see a bear. After my moose experience a year ago, I don't want to run into animals anymore in the wild unless I, can, I know. I like them in the, no, I don't like them in the cages. Anyway, so we see this bear, and he's lumbering across on the side of a hill, and that's kind of, everyone's taking a picture, and that's kind of cool. There's a bear, blah, blah, blah. One day on a hike, there's a cub up in the tree, just off the trail, hanging upside down. And I go, what in the world? And he's scratching the bark off the tree. He's falling on the ground, he's licking the sap. And I'm going, wow, that is cool. You're right there. I'm thinking, Looks like a cub. I'm not a real good guy with bear sizes yet, you know, but looks like a cub. But anyway, so we walk on, and then we come back, and sure enough, there's the mom at the base of the tree, and she's one big mama, way bigger than that cub. <laughs> and, and I go, this is so cool because we're in experiencing it. We're in, you know, enjoying it, right? Amen? This is what Paul is inviting you and I to experience in Romans 6 and 7. He's saying, listen, I don't want you to just view this stuff from afar with a big telephotic lens. I want you to journey into it. I want you to understand that you really are dead and alive in me. You're, you're dead to yourself and resurrected in me. And sin isn't meant to be your taskmaster and your slave master. Christ is meant to be that. And I want to fill you personally with the power you'll need to experience the sanctified life I intend for you, and that is the person of the Holy Spirit's work in you. Amen? Don't be satisfied with a far-off view of Christianity. Be selfish. Ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you and to have this experience of true inner peace and true victory over sin and truly being set apart for the glory of God and enjoying the sanctified life, and I absolutely need to quit. This is so important, though. It's such a different way of doing Christianity. So I pray that the Holy Spirit's illuminating what I'm sharing with you this morning and it's touching your hearts. Let's pray, and then we're going to do some baptisms. Lord God, I want to thank you for Romans 6 and 7, and thank you for the progression of getting to today 
and we acknowledge Jesus that we can't do any of this on our own, that we need the person of the Holy Spirit to fill us. So we pray without any shame, without any hesitation for the Holy Spirit to fill us and for him to do in us that which we cannot do ourselves. Holy Spirit, would you comfort us? Would you make the truth of Jesus known to us? Would you convict us when we go astray? When you guide, would you guide us, please, when we don't know where to go? But we just ask to be filled with you. Fill us anew, fill us fresh, and cause us to live and move and have our being in the Lord Jesus Christ in a very real way. And help us to see the beauty of Jesus and the wonderment of God. And help us experience the heavenly joys and experience genuine life change. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, and by your blood. And all God's people said,